0: Would you sit down? If the the little uh, yellow sheet is helpful for following the sermon, please use that. And do turn back to our reading uh, that was uh, our readings that were read so well for us uh, from 1 Samuel 17. Let me ask you a question: What what makes you feel insecure? It can be a revealing question, can't it? You think about it: the kind of things that make you worry about stuff, make you feel insecure and most of the time we, we just kind of bumble along not really thinking about it we we'll really think about it when we feel safe well that's a danger because what of the things that make us feel secure are not really that secure after all a few weeks ago Britain was terrible do you remember that? a few weeks ago it was terrible because of the credit crunch what a terrible country 19 gold medals later and our sense of security is restored we're brilliant again isn't it great? I've loved the Olympics. Actually, the thing I've really loved is the commentary. Uh, It's been so passionate. They've told the story of the different events in a way that's gradually moved me all the way to the edge of my seat, sitting in the shadow of greatness and shouting, Come on! The other Saturday, I was up at 3 a.m. in the morning as Michael Phelps turned in second place going into the last length of the race, significantly behind his Serbian opponent. The commentary went something like this. There's no way he can catch him. And then, oh, what competitor? Still trying all the way. And then he's catching him up, but he's left it just too late. And then, I can't believe what I'm seeing. He's going to catch him. He's going to catch him. He's done it. He's done it by one one hundredth of a second. Michael Phelps has won another gold. How I not mean, you love the passionate commentary? And if you've not, then be happy for me. <laughs> See, I think the writer of 1 Samuel would have made a great commentator if chapter 17 is anything to go by. And he wants to move you even further than the edge of your seat and leave you sitting in the shadow of someone truly incredible. The Lord Jesus himself. And as David tells us in part his account of the gospel, he'll ask us, where do you find your security? Didn't you love the way this commentator described events? Uh, The Philistines uh, come out against Israel. Goliath, the champion from Gath, well, you can't take your eyes off him, can you? The the details are in verses 4 to 7, if you've got it in front of you. Nine feet tall, And built for war, wearing the latest battle gear that the Philistine equivalent of Olympic lottery funding can supply. And be impressed by those weapons. That's cutting edge battlefield technology. That spear, like a weaver's rod, is the 1000 BC equivalent of a handheld guided missile. And verses 8 to 10, well, he's got plenty to say about his intentions for Israel. It's kind of mockery. Followed by enslavement, he's a nice chap. And verse 11, King Saul and the Israelites haven't failed to notice they're not feeling secure, dismayed and terrified. And just when you're wondering who's going to challenge Goliath, well verses 12 to 14, our commentator draws our attention to David, well, what's he got to offer? Well, verse 15, he's the guy with some sheep. It's hard to push to see him making an impact. So we're back to Goliath, verse 16 again, bellowing and boasting, defying Israel, defying their God. He's impressive. Verse 17, we're back to David. Well, what's he got to contribute to the battle? Well, verse 18, he's the guy with some cheese. Right, well, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? So verse 23, we're, we're back to Goliath, shouting and stomping. End of verse 23, back to David again. Well, it's, a, it's a little annoying, isn't it? So we're getting ready for the fight, and we keep being drawn to the sheep and cheese boy. <laughs> so what's he got to offer? Well, verse 23, at the end, he's the guy with good hearing. And he's heard Goliath's defiance. So by the time you've got to this point, you'd imagine neutral readers, people who've not read the story before, thinking you're not serious. You're not suggesting he should fight Goliath. That would be like well like a lamb to the slaughter, wouldn't it? But you and I know, we know. That is how things continue. David's the one who's going to fight Goliath. And as you move to the edge of your seat and say, well, what has he got more than sheep and cheese? Our commentator says in verse 51, well, he's got the severed head of Goliath in his hand. Gruesome? Or perhaps, but a glorious victory. And what's the point? What's David got to say about the gospel? About the good news? Well, actually, you realize, and I hope you did as we read through it, David's had quite a lot to say. Did you notice three major conversations? And all of them driven by, well, you'd have to call it theology, uh, three major conversations, and I suspect our commentator's telling us, you want to appreciate David's victory? Well, then you need to listen to David's sermons. So here's the first thing, and it's on your handout, that first heading. Uh, David tells us the good news about God's victory. Because as you listen to David, he, he gives you an insight into whose victory this is. Well, speaking to Saul in verse 37, he says, The Lord will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Uh, to Goliath, verse 46 The Lord will hand you over to me. Verse 47. For the battle is the Lord's. See, it's true this is a battle between David and Goliath. but, But not in a way that minimizes the bigger picture. This is a battle between the Lord and Goliath. And David wants to show us the good news about his victory. See, look what he shows us. Look what he shows us. And he says, God's victory brings an end to defiance and threat. I had the, the pleasure of visiting my dentist during the week. Uh, he's a good dentist. Uh, like all dentists, he shares that ability of downplaying the discomfort you're about to experience. You know, that kind of ability dentists have. You know the kind of thing they say, you might feel a gentle rumbling, which roughly translates to, thunder and smoke will emerge from your mouth as I drill. The new phrase for me from last week was, now this might not taste the best. (laughs) It's an interesting sensation when your body's demanding that you spit something out while a man who used to be a friend wedges your mouth open with his fingers. There's no might about the unpleasantness of the taste. It was horrible. And I say that because running through 1 Samuel 17, there's a kind of verbal unpleasant taste. The chapter almost spits out a distasteful word. You hear it first in verse 10 from Goliath. When he says, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. And he'll repeat that for 40 days. And our commentator wants us to take note of it. So in verse 25, the soldiers say of Goliath, he comes out to defy Israel. And verse 26, David's question, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace? It's the, the same word that's translated there. Who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of Israel? Verse 36, he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 45, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It's a strong word. It's meaning somewhere between defy, deride, reproach, mock. So 40 days of that. And the point becomes clear. Dale Ralph Davis notes it in his book. Goliath is not merely the big goon from Philistia. Goliath's blabbering dishonours Israel's God. And so the way seems open to mistreat, threaten, and enslave his people as soon as you devalue God it won't be long before you devalue and mistreat people who have been made in God's image he discovered how as soon as you recognize people have value because they're made in God's image it starts to make all other categories secondary for evaluating them our creation, all the gifts that we have our abilities they're a gift of God's grace we didn't earn them As soon as I recognise that, the the more it should shape how I treat others. Uh, The more it should deliver the death blow to any notions of superiority or arrogance. Have you noticed how when you forget people are made by God and so valuable, it's much easier to gossip in the office, slander at the school gates, ignore awkward people when it comes to socialising, regard distressed asylum seekers as statistics. That's quite a few weeks back. Julia uh, pulled me up. Talking with some people, I started joking about a friend who wasn't there, and in my blabbering, started saying some unkind things. So how arrogant am I? Mocking someone made in God's image, just to make myself seem witty and clever to my audience. See, Goliath's attitude, while perhaps not so well developed, is alive and well in seedy little sinful hearts, even in full See, Goliath's words express that same sinful defiance you find in all who reject God, all the way to Satan himself. Defying and dishonouring the holy God, and that defiance in turn threatens the security and joy of God's people. See, what good news does David tell us God offers? It's a sobering thought, isn't it? 40 days of feeling invincible. And in a single moment, God smashes your brains out. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? 40 days of threatening to separate God's people from the security and joy he's promised them. And in a single moment... God engineers the separation of your head from your body. Actually, it's good news, isn't it, if you trust God? 40 days of being ridiculed and mocked, and in a single moment it turns to confident joy. See, 40 days of being threatened with slavery, and in a single moment you're invited to enjoy the victory of your new best friend. See, David tells us the good news that God will be victorious. And that his long-awaited judgment will come. His victory will put an end to defiance and threat. Goliath's end when it came was quick, definite, and final. And it will be for all who continue to reject God. He also says, God's victory is achieved through the weakness of God's king. See, men, isn't one of the best things to do when you're playing sport? Commentating on yourself. You ever do that? Commentating on yourself as if you're a champion and the world is watching you. Playing tennis without a hint of embarrassment with your wife or your girlfriend waiting for you to serve. You find yourself saying, serving for the match. Just needing this point to become Wimbledon champion. You serve it, it's in, and you say, it's an ace. You turn to the crowd that isn't there and say, thank you, you thank you, thank you. It's great, isn't it? Commentating on yourself. Uh, Julia and I were, were laughing about this. We went on holiday to New York. We'd never been there before. It was great. We walked onto the Staten Island Ferry with about a thousand other people. Uh, and I noticed, she told me I could tell you this, uh, I noticed she was waving at someone. I said, who are you waving at? And she said, well, the, the ferry captain up there, he's, he's, just, he's waving at me. I'm, I'm just waving back. I said, there's a thousand people here we've never been in this city we don't know anyone why do you think he's waving at you I love my wife she just likes to be friendly but we we laughed about it but it's, it's brilliant isn't it making ourselves the champion or the focus is brilliant and it's obviously a bit silly we do that with the bible though don't we Uh, We make Bible stories all about me. I want to make myself David in this story. I want to imagine I'm that brave. I want to even imagine I could be that brave. It would be brilliant. And it's obviously ridiculous. See, David's been introduced already. I think it's on your handout. In 1 Samuel 16, we we read this. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. See, Saul was a failure. He'd been rejected. David's the new king-in-waiting. He's the Lord's anointed. In the New Testament, that role is termed the Christ. But David's not the, the Christ or the king that people expect. Do you remember how he was viewed as we went through the reading? In verse 28, Eliab, the big brother, says this to him I know how conceited you are. You came down here only to watch the battle. In verse 33, Saul, you're not able to fight him. You're only a boy. He's been a fighting man from his youth. And when he does eventually let him go, he tries to dress him in his own armor. In verse 43, Goliath, am I a dog? That you come at me with sticks? So you understand their responses. Eliab's is kind of, you're a selfish character. You don't really care. Saul's is you're foolish and naive. You're not equipped for life in the real world of battle. And Goliath says, You're laughably weak. You're an insult to my intelligence and an insignificance to my ability. All of them saying There's no way you'd rescue anyone. Yet David's the only one in this story who's mentioned God. David's the only one in this story who understands the security and joy of all people is tied up with the honour and glory of God. And he knows that God will defend his honour and it will provide security for those who trust him. And so David, with what the world viewed as weakness... Walked down into the valley, walked down to what seemed certain death, and he ripped death's head off, silenced him, and walked back out again. To so join freedom for God's people. He won it for them, didn't ask for their help. A free gift of, well, you could call it grace. See, so he silenced Goliath's defines. He rebuked Saul's trust in godless human ability with all his armor. And he proved Alive's assessment of his character false. See, this victory humbled them all. Because it showed that they didn't understand God's character or trust his power. So so through the weakness of his Christ, God achieves his victory. And God's victory, what tells the world where to find lasting security well, that's verse 46. You what David says? And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. As someone wins eight gold medals in swimming, and you ask, who could have done that? And the only answer that you can give is Michael Phelps. this David walked in to face certain death armed with a stick and a sling and he walked out again and you ask who could have made him do that and the answer has to be no one but God and that's the point is to tell the world this is where God is so trust him And follow his Christ, his king. See, the gospel according to David seems to be God, through the perceived weakness of his Christ, will defeat and silence sin and fear, giving his people freedom and joy as a free gift. And he wants the whole world to know about it. Is that not good news? And do you want to know the best part? We'll turn over to the other side of your handout. Because this is the best part. David only shows us the shadow of the true Christ. And this great battle with Goliath only shows us the shadow. You may remember Jesus at the end of Luke's Gospel speaking to two dejected disciples who have seen him walk to his death and don't know that he's walked out the other side. He says this, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It was all about him. And Paul in Colossians, as uh, speaking about the Old Testament, says, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however was found in Christ. See, God's plan is making Jesus the focus of all human history. Displaying his goodness and grace in saving sinful people like us from the consequences of our sin. And it's as if God, shining a light to focus on him, Jesus casts his shadow all the way back through history so that even in God's dealings through David, we get a glimpse of the one who has now come we get a glimpse of the one who is even greater than David. And so Jesus' is victory. Now those watching David might have thought he's like a lamb to the slaughter. But Isaiah writing of the Christ said he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. See, David faced death with a staff and a sling. Well, Jesus faced death with his arms stretched out on a cross. He defeated sin and death, not with a stone, but even more gloriously through his own sin-bearing death on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And to prove his victory, God raised him from death and he walked out the other side. It's incredible, isn't it? See, people don't rise from the dead. No, but Jesus, the Christ, wants wants you and the world to know This is where the saving God is. Come and trust him. What about Jesus' motivation? Did you notice David's words in verse 34? He says this, Your servant, speaking to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. So David, concerned for his father's property. And he'll risk his life for the sheep. See, But the reality is always better than the shadow, isn't it? So you'll hear Jesus in John's Gospel say, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This command I receive from my Father. See, how gracious is God the Father that He would command His Son to lay down His life to rescue you. So how gracious is God the Son that He wants to obey His Father and give His life to rescue you. And Jesus' grace. See, David asked in verse 26 of a reading from 1 Samuel. Oh, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine? What will be done for him? What will he get? Now, the answer was given the verse before in verse 25. And he's told that the king will, will give him his daughter in marriage. And will exempt his family from taxes in Israel it's great isn't it a a victory that leads to a wedding with your family owing nothing for the rest of their lives it would be good to be loved by David wouldn't it it would be good to be in David's family not owing anything anymore but the reality is always better than the shadow isn't it so what is Jesus fighting for The New Testament Testament says it's to enjoy your love and your freedom. To the book of Revelation describing the character of relationship Jesus will enjoy with people like us says this Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. The relationship that Jesus wants to have with these people is that loving, intimate one. And it's not taxes that this Christ has freed you from. Because in Colossians we'll read, He forgave us all our sins. Throughout all eternity, you'll enjoy His love and grace and you will have nothing to pay. See, that's the gospel that David points us towards. Is that not good news? As you sit in the shadow of God's king. So let's ask again. And where do you find your security? It's a revealing question, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I I tend to talk about my insecurities as if they're a neutral thing. As if they're kind of neutral. It's just the way I am because of the things that have happened to me I'm I'm just like that because of all the stuff that's happened to me can I say and I don't want to minimize painful things that have happened to you but this is the main thing that has happened to you this is the main thing that has happened to you God's king has demonstrated his love for you and has guaranteed victory over sin and death eternally That is the main thing that has happened to you. Nothing will threaten your ultimate security if you put your trust in him. So, insecurity? Well, I think fundamentally it's caused by one of two things. Either it's a failure to understand how secure Jesus makes you. You just not understood it. Or, it is a sinful refusal to believe Jesus really does make you secure. But it's not just a character disposition. And it's not neutral. And so the good news is that it's something that can be brought under the gospel and changed. We're not meant to carry on being insecure. We're meant to know God's Christ. We'll become insecure... Whenever our confidence is in something other than Jesus, now that's why questions about security are revealing. It reveals the true object of our worship and trust: our idols. Now, let me give you, let me give you one example. Last year on holiday, I said something I really shouldn't have to a friend, and as I said it, I could see by the look in his face. He was slightly appalled by it. He's much more godly than me. I felt ashamed. But the thing I realized was I was more concerned with my friend's opinion of me than I was that I'd sinned against God. I was more worried that my reputation with my friend was now damaged. See, my security was located not with Jesus, who can forgive and defeat sin but in maintaining a perfect reputation with those whose opinion I've decided counts. See, so that's one of my one of the idols in my heart. And it stands like Goliath, bellowing that God can't save you, and I rush around like Saul, looking for armour to protect me. And Jesus says, I'll defeat that threat and remove your disgrace. See, I want to do things that just... Convince my friends, oh, I, I didn't mean it like that and cover it up, and it never works. I end up serving that little idol of my own reputation, and my own reputation will never make me secure because my sin is too great. I don't need better armor. I need a savior. Now, what do you feel you need to be secure? What armor do you use to convince you that you're okay? Is it your money? Is it having someone who loves you? Is it having your husband or your wife give you more affection and attention? Is it your reputation? Other people think you're okay, so that must mean you are okay. Is it your own self-discipline? You make yourself okay. Look, They can all be good things, but is that where security lies? Do they bellow at you? Pursue these things and they'll cover your weakness. They'll defeat your sin. They'll be the armor that protects you. Well, if they do, dear friends, those are the idols you serve instead of Jesus. And they'll never make you secure. Because your sin is too great. David wants to tell you the gospel. All he's doing here is letting you sit in Jesus' shadow. And he's saying God's Christ alone is the one who gives us the love and security that we need. And so believe the good news and trust him. Now let's pray together.